You are listening to the Ghost Light Podcast, Season 1, Episode 1, Oliver's Dream. After recovering from a mental breakdown while performing Hamlet that left him hospitalized and without an acting career, Jeffrey Tennant is directing his cobbled-together, cash-strapped theater company in a production of Shakespeare's play The Tempest. Meanwhile, Oliver Wells, Jeffrey's burnt-out ex-director and best friend, is directing a well-funded but artistically bankrupt version of A Midsummer Night's Dream at the prestigious New Burbridge Shakespearean Festival. All right, hello everybody. We're uh, working on episode one of uh, season one of uh, the Slings and Arrows. The title is Oliver's Dream. I am Paul Mackey. I'm Darcy Zepernick. I'm Amy Bowen. And I'm Ben Pfeiffer. All right, guys. What did you think of this episode in general? Um, I I enjoyed it. I I do have a question, real quick, Paul. Sure. Uh, in your description, you said that. One of the characters were hospitalized. Yeah, is that a spoiler? Because I, did that happen in this episode? I yeah, it's, see. it's it's mentioned in the news report uh, when they're reporting on Jeffrey being uh, chained up. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Okay, okay, okay. I didn't know if that was like a little accidental teaser of like a flashback that's coming up or something. Yeah. All right, so that just went over my head. <laughs> but uh, to answer your, your initial question, I I really enjoyed this episode. Like I said during our our intro cast or our zero our episode zero, um, completely blank on what this was going to be about or anything. So I am on board with it, and I uh, look forward to watching more of this of this series. All yep. right, Amy. I feel I feel the same way. I am absolutely on board with this series, and I absolutely do want to see more of this. I really like Jeffrey because you can tell that he's the one that really is doing it for the art. Since we're talking about this episode in general, um, I can tell that this is going to be one of those shows where a lot of the conflict comes has to do with the forces of the love of art opposing the forces of business. This yeah, is going to be fun, and we're going to have a lot to talk about. Yes, I think so. I just say no. I I agree with you, Amy. It's it's the the love of art versus the money of art. You know because yeah. that's the catch twenty two. Is everybody loves to you know create art and whatnot, but if you can't sell it, then it's hard to make a living, and then you end up doing other things to supplement yourself. So mm-hmm. I I agree with you. It'll be very interesting to see uh, how the two spectrums of that conflict collide going forward. Hmm. This seems to be a theme in my podcasting experience. <laughs> it's things like um, Jack mentions it in his song about the deadpan, and then there's I Should Be Writing and Adventures in Sci-Fi Pub- Publishing, and there's a, a lot of podcasts are created by artists who are trying to make somewhat of a living at it. So mm-hmm. this theme seems to come up a lot. So I'm definitely very interested in and can identify with to a certain extent, the characters in this show. Okay, Darcy, what did you think in general about the first episode? Well, I, I really enjoyed it. For me, it was, was kind of a, a retrospective of different things I've seen in, in the past, um, as well as uh, a lot of uh, the, the stereotypes that hang around <laughs> the theater. It was, it was really cool. It was fun for me to watch. really enjoyed it. All right, are we ready to to go in-depth? Sure. 
Okay, so we open in one of the classic settings, the bathroom. Jeffrey Tennant is plunging the toilet and discussing what bills to pay. And uh, for the Americans, if you didn't know, hydro is actually the electric bill. Oh, not the water bill. Yes. Oh, I did not know Because I figured it was the water bill since, you know, He's plunging the hydro. toilet. Well, mm-hmm. who knows? Yeah. <laughs> yes, a lot of the power for Ontario is generated from some dams hydro that are up electric. north and then also uh, the Niagara Falls, da- uh, uh, Niagara Falls uh, generators. Thank you. So, Jeffrey Tennant is played by Paul Gross, and probably in the U.S. he's best known as Benton Fraser from the Due South television series. Uh, what do we think of Jeffrey? Uh, he's an interesting fellow. Um, I, I Honestly, I have no idea who Paul Gross is. I, I did not recognize him. I've never seen Due South. I know that he's probably pretty big in Canada, but was not one of the standout people. The people that stood out with for me were some of the, the smaller role players. We'll get to them in a bit. I don't know. Out, out of the three, the, the Love Triangle three, which seems to be the three main characters, assuming that Oliver is going to come back in flashbacks, mm-hmm. I had a hard time liking any of them, to tell you the truth. I mean, maybe Jeffrey would be the closest, but uh, they all kind of seem like asses. Oh, yeah, uh, they do. <laughs> well, they are actors and theater people. And, right. <laughs> yeah. No offense to some... I mean, there are some really great, wonderful actors out there, but wow, yeah, the ego is really hard to get over. Yes, for, ego is a very good word. Yes. <laughs> yes. And Amy, I think you said it a little bit about what you thought of Jeffrey Tennant uh, initially. Yes, I did. I said that I liked him so far. Yes, he was kind of a jerk, and he is clearly kind of insane, but he is the the representative of caring about the art, period, mm-hmm. and nothing else, although this definitely shows the downside of that and that there are consequences to not even acknowledging that there is a business side, much less paying attention to it, which is what Jeffrey is doing. Yes. Basically. So uh, Jeffrey uh, goes upstairs, and then we get a vision of the storm in the tempest. It's the first real artistic, uh, you know, interpretation of the uh, of the theater experience that we get, and it's cut short by trouble with the electrics. <laughs> the hydro. <laughs> I don't. I don't think that's the hydro company's fault. I believe it's a. Uh, I believe it's guy. The, the bad patch job. A bad lamp is. or something. Yes. <laughs> well, dude, that light effect though that he had created that was pretty amazing. Yes, considering it's I such agree. a small theater company. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that scene too. was a great spectacle. Yeah. Yes. yeah, it was. Absolutely. And of course, some of it is uh, is interpretation and for your mind to make up because obviously the uh, the plunger is. Not continually a plunger, what we see on, on the screen, even though it is a plunger. Yeah. It's yeah. kind of, I, I kind Change. of thought that it was what was in his mind's yes. eye more so than what was actually happening. But who knows? So then we get the title sequence and the title sequence song of uh, Cheer Up Hamlet. And this seems like a good enough uh, time to speak about these two minor players that sing the uh, theme song. We've got Cyril, the bald one, is played by Graham Harley, and Frank... The uh, the mustache one is Michael Pauly, and uh, they are uh, they are vet- obviously veteran actors of uh, of Canadian productions. Michael Pauly is uh, Sarah Pauly's father. Oh, really? Yes. Hmm. Uh, or or is not actually. Uh, oh, <laughs> is but oh, it's really? not. Yeah, I mean basically <laughs> basically I believe that that uh, he was thought to be the father until sometime like within the last ten years. 
and it was revealed to be someone else, uh, you know, through DNS, D- DNA test or something like that. But Ooh. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. Okay, so Surprise. it wasn't just like an internet rumor. There was actual science involved. <laughs> I believe so. I don't know if it's. I don't know if there was DNA or if it was just someone finally came out and said, "Hey, you know, right, the truth right. is." Okay. All right. Uh, I, I mean, these guys. These guys obviously, uh, uh, you know, come in on the edges of the uh, storyline and and comment on it on a regular basis. And I have a theory about them. Uh, which I don't know if if it's true or not, but I don't think that they're really there. I think that they are kind of like a Rosencrantz and Guildenstein type of characters that are just, I don't know, they may physically be there or they may not be there, but every time they're ever on screen, they're only interacting between the two of themselves and never with any of the actual players or the people that are talking in the in the scene yeah. um i don't know if they're supposed to represent like a chorus you yeah. know because that's kind of a popular theme in shakespeare stuff yes or if they're supposed to be like the two muppets in the balcony or yes or what or, or a combination of all three of those things uh, yeah i mean i think it's i think it's pretty clear that uh that probably you know obviously they're not the correct age now but back when they were in their youth they probably played rosencrantz and guildenstern at some point i'm sure right. no doubt so I think it'll be interesting going forward to see because that that obviously didn't get resolved if that is actually a thing or if I'm just making up something in my own mind. So it'll be interesting to see uh, what happens to those two dudes. I think it's funny and appropriate and maybe just serendipitous. I don't know that the opening credit song for our podcast is also a humorous song about Hamlet. <laughs> right. So that work that couldn't possibly have worked out better. Yes, well, I, I mean, I, I, like I said uh, in the episode zero, I talked to Mark Gunn, and Mark Gunn said, "Hey, this is the one you should use." So, I'm, and I'm not even sure if he's familiar with slings and arrows or not, but he definitely. When I said something about theater or something about Shakespeare, he he was like, "This is definitely going to work for you." Cool. Right. Well, that's awesome. Thank you, Mark Gunn. <laughs> yes. So coming out of the credits, we open on a, set, a shot of the idyllic ver- village of New Burbage. Or, uh, no, wait a second, it's a poster at the gift shop of the festival of the same name. And we visit the rehearsal of A Midsummer Night's Dream. Oliver Wells, who is played by Stephen Met, he is the artistic director of the theater. I'm not sure if Tammy of I'll Watch That Movie with Tammy and Dan should probably let her daughter watch this show. But uh, if she, if her daughter did, she'd probably notice him that he's the voice of Pompadour on the Babar cartoon. Tammy has frequently uh, commented that her, her uh, daughter will listen to someone that's on screen in something that's an adult role and say, hey, they're also the voice of this, and she's usually right. <laughs> and listeners of a certain age would also know him as the voice of Beetlejuice on the Beetlejuice cartoon. Ah. Uh, his primary acclaim comes from his work in the uh, Stratford Festival. All right, what do we think of Oliver Wells? Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Well, <laughs> Do you have something to say about how he speaks? You know, I just have to say, is, it, is this just something that has to be? Do, do all artistic directors of higher-end regional theater have to have a British accent? I'm just asking <laughs> because, seriously, that seems to be the case. And it's an affected British accent, you think? It is, absolutely. You believe? I believe. Yes. Is he British in real life? Uh, no, the Stephen we met is Canadian. I'm not sure whether Oliver Wells is meant to be. You know, I, I don't know that it's ever directly uh, addressed where he's originally from. I don't think so. Because right, but the, act- <laughs> the actor is not. Yes. I happen to know of a uh, a particular artistic director in the area that has uh, a a accent very much 
like that, but I also know he's from Philadelphia. So <laughs> that's so maybe I put on. Yeah, could be, could be. Do we do we have further thoughts on Oliver? I no. I I was going to say I felt <laughs> sorry for him, but no, that was the other yeah. the high school drama teacher guy. Oh <laughs> uh, well, yeah. I just feel pity for that guy, but oh. yeah. I like there's there's a scene later on where we're supposed to feel sorry for Oliver and where he's in the bathroom and yeah. I don't think he earned it for me at least so I mean I don't know I I have an issue with people that are that are super into themselves which is probably why I had trouble connecting to those two dudes and then who are about to talk about the Tony Collette look alike uh, yes. who I don't know what her her actor name is or her what her real name is but out of the three of them I guess maybe I c- could connect with her the most but i don't know i i the beetlejuice guy <laughs> if, if by the end of the episode i mean it's just like well is he coming gonna be involved later on anyway so i mean right should i be invested in him of course we also run into uh maria the stage manager who actually i unfortunately did not write down the actress's name she's done oh, a like lot of way. she's done a lot of canadian television apparently I like her too. She's she mm-hmm. she's she's my best buddy actually. The stage manager is your best buddy. Always, always. Our, our our very good friend from college is a stage manager professionally in the Twin Cities, and uh, so therefore, nice. our best buddy is the stage manager. Yes. <laughs> uh, and okay. then we get uh, Ellen Fanshaw, and that is the diva. <laughs> Uh, her name Tony is Blatt, right? yes. Her, her, her <laughs> the actress's name is Martha Burns. She is the real life spouse of Paul Gross. Okay. Hmm. Interesting. Oh. Interesting. And mm-hmm. was a classmate of uh, flat, a classmate and founding member of the Soul Pepper Theater Company, along with uh, Susan Coyne, who we'll uh, mention in a minute. But she's one of the writers of this series, and uh, she's done several seasons at the Stratford Festival. I bet. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. So a lot of people are attached to this festival in real life, right? But now is the name the name of the town Stratford in the show as well? Because uh, yeah. I thought they said something else, like yeah, Burgess or New, something Burgess. like that. Yes, it's New Burbage. New Burbage. Okay. It's New Burbage. But it's so the Stratford Festival is the real life they're... festival. Okay, okay, okay. The Stratford right. Festival is the real life festival, um, which is named after the town that they're in Strat that, that the real life festival's in Stratford. And this is the New Burbage Theater Festival named after the town it's in, New Burbage. Mm. And you all know what Stratford on Avon is, right? Of course, Where? of course, of course, we all okay. do. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, Ellen, uh, do we do we want to just address her as we get, see her throughout the episode, or is there anything that's uh, brought overview? This is the the main actress. Yes. Uh, right off the bat, I mean, I I when she int- became introduced, I thought she was a caricature of a diva. I didn't realize she was going to play such a, a pinnacle role. In at least this this pilot episode, sure. Uh, and I assume like she is. I, I I basically lump those three people as the main characters of the show. Like their conflict is going to be the most important, or at least her and Jeffrey's interactions are going to be the most important. So w- when she came on in this initial scene that you're talking about, Paul, um, I didn't really latch on to her because I thought that she was going to play the high and mighty person who thinks it's all about them. You know, and and be kind of like a like a a spoof or a caricature of that kind of archetype. So I was shocked to find out later on that she is such a pinnacle person. Sure. In this scene, I was much more focused on what was going on 
between Oliver and the stage manager. And when I saw the production scene of the opening night of Midsummer Night's Dream, I was a little startled, to be honest, that he didn't listen to her. Everybody, even me, who knows or has read anything about stagecraft and acting, knows that that is the first rule of being on stage. Namely, never turn your back to the audience, for those who don't know. And I just spent the whole time thinking, what is wrong with Oliver? Yeah, how could that... I know that. Yeah, it didn't, see, it didn't seem possible that that could have ever been blocked that way to begin no, with. No, that's, right. that was, that's not realistic. I mean, they're trying to show... They're trying to show some of the things How that, much he doesn't any care. Man, yes. Exactly. Yes, exactly. that's right. What Ben said. Why is only the stage manager speaking up? Why isn't either the Ellen or the guy playing Oberon or the guy playing any of the other fairies speaking up about this? Well, and why didn't she just say fuck it and turn around when she said that line? <laughs> you know, I, I'm so, I, I don't know if we're supposed to be a clean podcast. Oh, yeah. We're, why no, didn't she? <laughs> we can be well, explicit. I mean, I, we're well, explicit. Okay. The show isn't. Well, now we're getting the explicit tag. <laughs> we weren't already. But, right, but, right. Well, that's the other thing is that they they drop a few f bombs in this in the show, right? Don't yeah. they say yes. it once or oh, twice? Yeah. They so, do? is know. this was this like on an HBO type thing or like yeah. a BBC? It's okay, Canada. yeah, it was. Pro- but it's cable. It's, it's cable. Can, it's, it's it is cable. It was produced for the okay. move for the Canadian quote the movie network. So their HBO, well named, yes. <laughs> okay, all right. Because I was wondering if it was supposed to be like a BBC type show or like a. You know, or even like a network show. I I don't know what to compare it to because we don't really have uh, maybe like The West Wing. Yeah, no, like, it's, it's like definitely that kind of drama. It's definitely a, a, an HBO style drama. It was uh, it was co-produced for the second and third season by the Sundance Channel in the U.S. So uh, then we get to see a little aside of um, Kate McNabb. Um, that's the uh, the brunette of this pair of actresses, um, Rachel McAdams, who had roles in Mean Girls and The Notebook. Uh, I think a lot of people in the U.S. might know her from The Notebook. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's a name I recognize, and I thought her face looked a little bit familiar. Yeah, she looks really familiar. She must have. Has she been anything else that you can think? Of? I would say she's well, maybe it's just because of The Notebook, but uh, she's pretty big. I mean, I, I don't know if I'd throw her an A list, but she's uh, in a lot of those kind of like romantic type movies. And something something about her, she always reminds me of like like a Parker Posey type, but sure. not quite, you know, like, I don't know if you ever saw, um, what's the waiting for Guffman, which this kind of reminds me of at least first off. I mean, that's obviously way more over the top, uh, which is also about, that's about a super small town putting on a theater production, but right. I don't know. I don't know. I, I, she was one of the, there were two people who I knew in this show and she was one of them. So right. it was very easy for me to latch on to her and I like her. She's and cute. She'll be, you know, sure. And her friend Claire Donner uh, is played by Sabrina Gridovich. It's uh, one of those names with, that seems to have too few vowels for Americans. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, her main acclaim is, is quite a bit of work at the Stratford Festival, and she's also married to Peter Wellington, who directed all of these episodes. Hmm. So it sounds like a lot of these people are very big in the theater world in real life, and... Was this supposed to be a platform for a lot of them to start getting onto uh, television, I guess? Um, I don't think so, but I think, I mean, obviously the, the writers probably were basing a lot of the, uh, the dramatic 
events of this series from things that they might have experienced in one way or another at the Stratford Festival working there. So I think they probably cast a lot of their friends and a lot of the people that were like, oh, yeah, you'll be perfect for this. I know exactly right. what, what kind of role for casting. Okay, that makes sense. Uh, so uh, do did, did, did we have any opinions of these two girls? I mean, um, you don't see too much of them throughout this episode, a little bit here and there. I don't know. I, I mean, they're your your typical, yeah, you know, young, Kate's, young ingenue type. Yeah, I mean, Kate, Kate Kate's the uh, Kate's the kind of the first year actress who's only playing fairies and things. And um, uh, Claire, on the other hand, is is playing some of the larger roles. She's playing Puck, obviously, in 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 the dream. Mm-hmm. I think that yeah. both of these characters are going to develop nicely throughout the series. Yeah. I think there's lots, and that's and those those types of characters are set up for that specific, so that they are fresh and new right at the beginning, and you watch them, their character arc grow over a season or two. That's right, and because they are fresh, new faces to drama, they're wide-eyed, they're re- they're idealistic. They also are a great character contrast to the old people who have been doing this forever and are old and jaded and bitter, like mm-hmm. Oliver and Ellen. Exactly. Right, right. And that's that's actually that's very much how it is. You know, you you get the the new kids just coming in fresh out of college. They've got so much energy. They're so excited about it. And then, you know, you have the people like Oliver who really just don't care anymore. Mhm. Okay, so the the inter- the uh, rehearsal gets interrupted by Richard Smith Jones. We'll get to him in a minute. Um there's a bit of a scene in between um after Richard Smith Jones interrupts where Anna Conroy appears she's the associate administrative director of the festival and she's played by susan coyne she's also one of the show's creators one of the writers and she's acted uh, many seasons at the stratford festival again so so she's the one that they that uh, oliver speaks to as he's going up to meet with richard about the wine about the wine and things yes right so then uh we have the meeting with uh richard smith jones richard smith jones is played by mark mckinney He's best known from uh, being one of the members of Kids in the Hall, and he is one of the creators of the show as well. He and uh, and he and uh, Susan Coyne wrote the show along with Bob Martin. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. So, uh, so, so basically, over the course of the whole sequence, we we got to meet a lot of the company members. We saw the artistic preparations, and then we get to look at the business preparations. And uh, in a lull, we see Oliver looking at a, sh- a photo of uh, Oliver, uh, Jeffrey, and Ellen in happier times surrounding a uh, skull. Poor York. Mm. Alas. <laughs> Alas. And that, and that immediately clues those of us who are in the know into where, when or on what occasion that picture must have been taken in a production of Hamlet. Yes. Yes. Everybody the knows production. About that. Yeah. One of uh-huh. three. <laughs> Right, yes. right, yeah. Indeed. So, and the, so we we get uh, a look at uh, the uh, that that dichotomy, the the artistic director and the business director, in conflict over who gets to sit at the uh, premiere opening night. Oliver wants to get a couple of actors and their family in because they didn't have a, a role for them in this uh, production. Where uh, Richard is looking for as many uh, members of the corporate sponsor as possible to be able to sit in the audience. And then uh, Richard moves moves on. He, he needs to go to the uh, headquarters of the Lenstrex Corporation. And when he's at the headquarters, there's confusion and chaos. And Richard learns there's been a takeover and a shakeup of management. Yeah, uh, I really like this sequence. <laughs> yes, I did too. This was this was <laughs> one of my favorite sequences of the whole episode. 
just because we're as much in the dark as Mark McKinney is as to what's going on, but it's pretty obvious that they're obviously firing people left and right. And one of the, the best little touches that I really, really liked is that he's waiting in that boardroom and, you know, these people are obviously getting fired right behind him. And he walks over and he picks up a chair yes. and, like, picks it back up. So you could tell that there was some kind of, like, scuffle and huff and somebody threw a chair. And, like, he's kind of cleaning up the aftermath while kind of patiently waiting his time to, for his meeting. Yes, and his meeting uh, comes in. Uh, David is the person that he's been working with for a long time, but he has to uh, introduce Holly Day. And Holly Day is uh, played by Jennifer Irwin, and she's best known for a role on the CBS sitcom Still Standing, and more recently she's been on Eastbound and Down as well. She looks super familiar. Like, I couldn't place her, and I think it's because she reminds me a lot of Samantha B who is on The Daily Show. She's, one of, she's the blind reporter on The Daily right, Show. He's right. been on a whole bunch oh, yeah. of other stuff. Yes. Yeah, so, so, I mean, obviously she's been doing quite a bit of work in the U.S., but uh, I, didn't, I didn't know her from anything in particular. Uh, obviously mm-hmm. I looked, looked up where she's from. So uh, David tells Richard uh, what he thinks of her, <laughs> and then he's <laughs> got to go and attend to a thing that he's got to deal with. Assuming this is not his untimely suicide, he's apparently off to... Northern branches. Mm-hmm. AKA Anchorage, Alaska. <laughs> Yay. So Richard launches directly into a sort of a panicked string of numbers about uh, what's going on uh, in the theater, about how he's improved it, but uh, finds that she's actually proposing increased funding and wants to attend opening night with him. Yeah, I'm, I was caught off guard by that. Like, I feel like there's, there's something more shaky behind this character. I mean, yeah. if it's a if it's a corporate takeover and they're firing people left and right and trying to, you know, tighten their belt, the one of the first things to go would be charity. And so the fact that she wants to give more money towards a foundation, I don't know. I it's and her immediate attraction to Mark McKinney also kind of made me feel a little wary about her character as to whether or not that is uh real or she's just playing a system to get something else further down the line or playing a long con i don't know absolutely <laughs> I, mm-hmm. I, I i feel sure that that money ain't coming and that's mm-hmm. that, i have a feeling that's gonna be a plot line at some point absolutely right that scene really hooked me into the show and piqued my curiosity what else is going on here so the corporation that's been their sponsor forever is has apparently been bought by a larger corporation. So now what? Mm-hmm. And are are they really serious about sponsoring them more? How will this affect the festival for the rest of the series? That's one of the things I'm looking forward to finding out. Yeah, you never you never count on your sponsors until you see those checks come in. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. All right, and meanwhile at the uh, Theater Sans Argent. The landlord is pursuing eviction. Uh, Jeffrey writes a check to avert the crisis. Just in the nick of time. <laughs> Just wait till the checks come in. Right? <laughs> Just happen to have that in his account. I'm sure, that, I'm sure that that'll come in on opening night in the, in the box office. No trouble. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what bugs me is the, the landlord keeps saying no one comes to see shows here. So far we only have his and Jeffrey's and... Jeffrey's friend's word about that. 
and we can see that they have a cheesy, broken-down building where the toilet doesn't work, <laughs> and the lights are busted. But that's that's really all we know about this theater so far. So I would have liked to have known more about it and its audience or lack thereof. Yeah, maybe maybe they'll get more into that later because I mean that's I mean there's a lot of theaters like that and it's yeah. Yeah, I mean the twin the, the Twin Cities uh theater market in uh, here uh in Minnesota is really saturated with small theaters. Hmm. Um I mean there's small theaters that have been going on for for 30 years or more, 30, 40, 50 years, but then there's also small theaters that are popping up and down all the time. We've got a couple of friends that actually operate a small theater. Yeah, but they, you know, whether or not they have funding this year or not, who knows? They're doing really well right now, but it's it's been it's been touch and go for years and years, and they don't even know if they're going to have a venue or it. It just it's uh, it's a, it's a different reality than than one might think. Than the corporate sponsored reality. Absolutely, totally, <laughs> totally different. And I've I've done both. I've done both kinds of theater, and it's. Which one, out of curiosity, which one did you prefer? Did you like the freedom that the uh, independent, less funded theater had? Or did you enjoy all the amenities that the corporate sponsored one afforded? Is is amenity, is that like a paycheck? Because that's that's the one I like the most, was the one with the nice paycheck. (laughs) They were paying you, I imagine, like their prop department was better i don't i don't really know yeah no it is and you know like their lighting rigs were better their sound equipment was probably better either you have a shop full of 30 people making a whole entire wardrobe of costumes or you have one lady in her basement working until three in the morning doing them all by herself you know that's that's really the reality of it and and i prefer the shop full of 30 people (laughs) because it's it's much better well, I imagine in those kind of situations that there's less tension. Absolutely. You know, so well, to at some least, degree. I mean, they try to make their like own the tension, but yeah. Right. It is. It's, you know, when you, when... But it's know. not the tension of how am I going to eat tomorrow. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. exactly. It's the tension of this doesn't look correct, or, you know, you're not doing your part the way it should be, or whatever. Right. And they make crap up, too. You know, people are like, right. uh, you know, they'll make up their own drama. Everybody loves drama. Exactly. Just to <laughs> keep it interesting, right? All right. So then uh, we move on. In contrast, uh, they move on to New, Bur- New Burbage uh, again, and the registers are ringing. And uh, Oliver goes throughout, through the motions of opening night, repeating his speech a couple of times in the main dressing rooms. Kate runs up to him, gets her fairly ordinary note, and brings up the sensitive topic of his Hamlet. Uh, which he which she says everybody says she probably shouldn't mention it and he says that's right. <laughs> uh, and Oliver moves on into Ellen's dressing room where the same photo from Hamlet again appears. E- Ellen calls Oliver out on slacking through his production. Yeah, needless yeah, to and say. I, <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, I think it was pretty obvious in that this the two scenes where he goes in the girls' dressing room and like you said, gives the same speech to them and then the exact same speech and almost the exact same joke and all, all just to the boys and then walks out and it's just like you could tell he does not give two shits about <laughs> what's going on and that he's probably drunk. I imagine after uh, he had his meeting with Mark McKenney and they got the wine, then he probably had a bottle on his own, never came back to give – uh, Rachel McAdam, her notes, or to give Ellen her blocking info, and it's just completely thrown in the towel. 
Right. And, I mean, there's no doubt that uh, he's been, you know, with the flask the whole time. I mean, that he mm-hmm. probably, you know, he wakes up, pours himself one. There's no doubt about that. There was one thing in that entire scene that I genuinely did feel a little sorry for him for. And that was, no, I have not come up with my own witty quip in 20 years of doing this. I'm still using (laughs) Sir whoever it was, he said. Ralph Richardson. That's it. So showtime rapidly approaches. We see the company stressing out and the lobby teeming with theater goers. Oh, uh, we did uh, see some more examples of uh, Ellen Fanshawe's divaism in her dressing room as well. Oh my god! <laughs> yeah, that that like uh, that hurts. Turn on a dime, just automatically exploding and apologizing. And it is it happens. No kidding. There was there was one lady. All she ever she never got my name. I was always dresser, and it was it was horrible. So it, <laughs> I know, I know. And I mean, that's this. We're not even talking like big time theater. So that was really bad. Oh my goodness! Wow. <laughs> so we launch into the show actually beginning, and the uh, Leafs game is obviously underway as well. As <laughs> I love yeah, that they threw that fun. in there, and that the audience and the, uh, the and the production team are variously watching and listening to the hockey game and paying attention to the uh, show. <laughs> um, and how? Who schedules an opening night? Well, uh, or or is it possible to avoid that? I, well, you know, I mean, obviously the opening night has to be scheduled quite a bit in advance, and you don't necessarily know if your team's going to make it to the playoffs. Oh. No, and okay. this is supposed to be, the, you know, some of the playoffs for the Stanley Cup. The Toronto Maple Leafs uh, are the team in question, so they are talking NHL and they are talking Stanley Cup. Oh, okay. And I did, I, I did like the touch that they did throw the sports in there. Because, I mean, we're watching the show, and I know that the primary audience of this show are people that are very into the theater arts. But I, I was just struck as to how everyone in this town is all about the arts. And when they did throw the sports part in there, it kind of made it a little bit more realistic uh, to the fact that even the director of the play is listening to the sports, you know? And, like, the... Um, what was her? The minister of cultural arts or whatever yes. like she even had a little uh little earbud <laughs> and so i not only did it help add to the apathy of uh our main character of oliver but it also kind of grounded that this wasn't the central most important thing for everyone in that town so i thought that that was a nice little bonus just to kind of make the show a little bit more realistic right they were there because they felt like they had to be right they had to be exactly and Frank and Cyril take note of the quiet house. Ellen's speech goes clearly just as bad as she had predicted with nobody hearing. The sheep bleats are apparently a success. Yeah, very very mm-hmm. comical. Well, I laughed when they came out. <laughs> I know. Mm-hmm. And you could even buy the sheep in the gift, gift store if you needed some sheep. Of course. Nice. <laughs> and Oliver is watching the production uh, from the closed circuit feed in the security office. And even he wants to see the Leafs game, but he catches a snippet of the news and goes back, and Jeffrey has chained himself to the theater's doors and gets arrested. The uh, newscaster spells out the situation. After a mental breakdown seven years back, it ended, uh, effectively ended his acting career. This was a great scene. This was the wham moment when you finally find out just what exactly the connection is between Jeffrey and Oliver. Mm-hmm. From the newscast, so 
pow, good exposition <laughs> and good storytelling. I really liked that scene, and I went, oh, now you've got me interested. Uh, yeah, and then I also wanted to, uh, to point out the uh, security uh, guard is named uh, Naum. The character's name yep. is Naum. It's played by Rutherford Gray. He's a Canadian actor who's done a lot of, a lot of television and, and film in Canada. And I, I especially liked. Uh, it sort of has a, has a commentary on. Uh, well, it has a commentary on on what kind of things happen with immigration. I mean, I don't know how many of the uh, taxi drivers that I've had that have said, "Oh, I used to be a dentist in my old country" or something like that. I mean, obviously, this this uh, security guard for the theater building is uh, a former director in his own right. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I thought that was interesting. I liked that touch. Mm-hmm. And uh, the the uh, the play ends, and uh, we get to see Claire for a little short bit as Puck delivering the closing couplets of the uh, Midsummer Night's Dream. To which I reacted, "That's cheating! Don't end after the fourth line. Say the whole thing." But then <laughs> a second, but then a second later, I thought, "Maybe that's the TV producers and not the producers of the play." Not mm-hmm. wanting sh- ha- having a limited amount of time for the TV show. Yes. So I, I guess um, all of Shakespeare's works are now public domain, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So there's no like issue with them doing any of these. You can make uh, nope you can... productions and and airing them on TV. Uh, we yeah, could, we could put that show on in our backyard this. this yeah, that's this right. Summer, and we can make whatever cuts. <laughs> Make whatever dialogue cuts we want to make, That's and right. add in the Effenheimers we want. Could set it in Nazi Germany or whatever, whatever you want to do. Yeah. No, we're not going to do that, but no. we could. <laughs> well, you got me excited. All right. Well. <laughs> <laughs> Would you come all the way out from Chi-Town to see that? No, I don't think so. Yeah, you guys are only well. You're probably a couple of hours. It's about actually. eight hours. We've got that super bus. Mm. Oh, super bus. <laughs> Mega bus. Mega bus. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so uh, then we get into some of the uh, the after show activities. We've got uh, Basil, the film critic, uh, played yes. by Sean Cullen. He's a comedian, sketch and stand up artist, and he does musical Hilarious. comedy. Hilarious! Like this is the other person that I recognize. When he came on, I was like, "Oh shit, there's Sean Cullen!" Like I listen to a lot of comedy podcasts, and mm-hmm. he frequently guests on a lot of the Earwolf stuff or. I don't know if he's on Nerdist stuff, but he's on Doug Loves Movies a lot, which is where I really know him from. And I was when he showed up, I was like, thank, not thank God, but all right, this is someone I'm really, really into in my regular life that I can actually will follow along. Only problem is I think that he's probably just like a featured player, so he's probably only going to be in a couple of episodes here or there. I don't know. But he's still. a critic. He's got to keep coming back to the He is the shows, critic, right? yeah. And he's, uh, you know, backstage at least, he's busy complimenting everyone. More or mm-hmm. less, uh, I don't know how much of a compliment it is that uh, you don't ask, you don't, you don't make uh, demands of the audience. You coddle them, and uh, yeah. your shows are comfortable. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, you don't make them think. You just you just let them uh, sit there. Yes. Mm-hmm. And that's a big compliment, right? Big, and, big compliment. Yeah. <laughs> and Ellen's getting boring, and I, 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 I kind of wonder whether he actually meant it. <laughs> Before he got went on to his uh, to his uh, contrasting speech of uh, because you're nothing less than perfection, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, then we get to the uh, the the two young uh, actresses again, and Claire is saying that she really discovered Puck tonight, and and then here is Mr. Stewart. 
Oh, Mr. Stewart. Mr. Stewart, played by Chaz Lawther, who you might have also seen in Wonderfalls, and also uh, Police Academy 3 and Iron Eagle 4. <laughs> <laughs> this is the uh, high school guy. Yeah, the- yes. that's the high school teacher. Oh, boy. Poor guy. Yeah. Yeah, he's the really pathetic one that you really feel sorry for. He's the one who waited 20 years for one of his students to get into this. And uh, it just... Can I blurt out a quote here? Go for it. Because I know it's not time for quotes yet, but... (laughs) You know how I cast now? The tallest one's Romeo, the one with the biggest tits is Juliet. Love it. We just go, oh, that is harsh. That is a guy who really really doesn't care about the craft anymore. No. Oh, boy. And and it is interesting to see his apathy kind of mirror, or slightly mirror, the apathy of uh, Oliver. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. But yeah, no, no, I I felt way more pitiful, or felt that he was pathetic, and I felt pity for him when he Mm -hmm. said, we made it to... to, um, Rachel McAdams, as if he is finally living his dreams through her, even though he hasn't even seen her probably in 10 years or whatever. That's absolutely Just, right. Yeah. yeah. Very sad. Yeah. No, I, I, the, I, was, I was afraid that this was, when I first watched the series, when I first watched this episode, I was afraid it was going to go in a different direction with him because, uh, you know, she says initially that uh, back, back in the theater when she's talking about him, she says that, you know, all the girls had a crush on him and he was always giving massages and talking about Brecht. And I was like, okay, so yeah. he's touchy-feely, creepy guy, uh-huh. and now, now she's an adult and not a student anymore. And I was concerned that it might go a different direction. So was I. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I was worried about I was I I picked up on that very very strongly and I worried about that too. Right. I I still do as a matter of well, fact. I don't know if yeah. if he's giving massages to high schoolers, she may be too old for him by now. <laughs> <laughs> uh so then we go upstairs to the uh to the uh reception. Basil and Ellen are discussing Oliver's rut and Basil's being a lot more forthright about exactly what he thinks of everything. Uh, eventually, Ellen tells him to shut up, and there is a uh, rather dreadful series of speeches, and then Holly Day and Richard talk more about the numbers, and Holly flirts with Richard. Was this the, um, as that's going on, though, those speeches? Yes. Is that when Oliver gives the middle manager a uh, an award or something, uh, that right. book of, I thought that was actually well done, uh, to to show just how ridiculous this corporate influx has become on this quote-unquote artistic moment you know that obviously oliver doesn't care and everyone there doesn't care and everyone's going through the motions uh but yeah no like i really enjoyed that scene just to show how deeply involved this corporation has become into this artistic you know Part of the community. Yeah, so we get we get the on the DVD. There's a, an outtake that is just Donald Capasani's speech, and it is. I mean, you get you just catch the very beginning of it right at, right as the uh, as they trail off into other dialogue. But he's he's going on about how well. We don't say we, we we disagree. We think everybody's story is important, and it doesn't matter you know what color, creed, sexual orientation. You know we're we're supportive of all people, and 
you know, really <laughs> as if he's reading straight from the employee handbook. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, I, what I was just... his initial quote? Do, does anybody remember? Like he he starts his speech with a quote that I am assuming is from a Shakespeare play, but I have no idea. It could be something completely. Yes, the the um, um, <gasps> signifying nothing. Life is a no. tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury and signifying nothing. Yes, it is from a Shakespeare play. Sorry, I don't know which one. I should have done my homework before and boy, this. boy, I should have, I should have, too. <laughs> oh, I feel bad. I know that, but I, I can't place it. Well, we'll get back to that. Sure, we could. Right, we right. No, but I love, I love that he quotes Shakespeare and then says, this is why Shakespeare was wrong. You know, to an extent. And he uses corporate propaganda or corporate employee handbook to you know undercut the main purpose of this whole event that's happening right i thought that was that was well written that that scene and i think donald did a great job uh delivering those lines yes it, um, i i i looked it up guys okay. it's Macbeth. Macbeth. okay thank uh, you yeah, that's one that I – I'm glad that we started with Midsummer Night's Dream because that is a play that I know and I have seen. Um, I know that – I have not seen Macbeth, and I think I've only seen the movie version of the Hamlet, the Mel Gibson. Well, actually, Mel Gibson. I've seen the Mel Gibson one and the Ethan Hawke one. Uh, I may have even turned off the Ethan Hawke one midway through, though. I don't think I've ever uh, seen the movie version. You certainly saw the Mel Gibson, I'm sure. No. No, you never saw I the Mel Gibson? It. I've only ever seen it as a play. Yeah. As far as, like – plays turned into movies that one's not too bad i'll, I'll have to look into that and meanwhile um uh, we do have the um we do have on hand here that i we still haven't actually sat down and watched because it's it's somewhat difficult to sit down and watch but uh, we've got the uh patrick stewart and david tennant version uh Ooh. on on hand here at the that's, house that's for me of, of Macbeth or hamlet of hamlet okay because i know stewart does like like he's got a Macbeth out there. I think he's got a Richard the Third out there. Well, well I mean, it's, yeah, Patrick. Yeah, Patrick Stewart was RSC before it, yeah. before right. he was anything else. Right. And continues mm-hmm. to be Royal Shakespeare. Well, I watch I watch a lot of Star Trek, so Netflix <laughs> continuously recommends Patrick Stewart's uh, theater work to me as well. That's yay Netflix. <laughs> yay Netflix. Yes. Yes. Agreed. So I've only really looked at about like fifteen minutes of this uh, of this multi hour production that was uh, adapted for the BBC. Of the uh, of the Patrick Stewart David Tennant Hamlet, are we ready to move along? Sure. Okay, and we're off to the bar. Oliver is holding forth on drunkenness and actors, and Mister Stewart is hanging on every word, other than correcting Oliver on the year that Burton was Hamlet. Oliver said it was sixty four, and Mister Stewart said no, sixty six. Anybody know which one it was? Oliver was correct. It was sixty four. <laughs> <laughs> I did do that. I did do that research. <laughs> well, that's great because that's two notes that he was wrong on. Like the uh, when he told Puck that it's all about pace or whatever. Yeah, yes. pick up the pace. <laughs> and uh, Oliver just about mentions Jeffrey's production, his production with Jeffrey of Hamlet, and uh, yeah, only just it avoids stops. it. Kate is so embarrassed about Mister Stewart that Claire offers him an initiation. <laughs> <laughs> I, I like Claire. I really do. Yeah, just, yeah just I do too. That. I think she's going to be a good character in general. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. Um, Oliver goes into the restroom, and here's the hard truth of what some people think of the production that he uh, just produced and uh, about his uh, status in many people's eyes. Right. And this is 
this is supposed to be the tearjerker scene, right? I suppose. Well, I mean, you know, it really. Yeah. Out of out of the whole series, I mean, that seems like it was supposed to be like not the whole series, the whole show. That was supposed to be the most sad moment, I guess. Uh, yeah. Where I didn't actually. I mean, I felt bad for him, but at the same time, I mean, I look at where he is in his life, you know, and I was like, well, you made yourself that, and you know, you could. I have a I have a hard time feeling bad for someone who's in his position. Okay, you know well, who's who's the artistic director of a major theater company in Canada. I'm sorry that you're sad, but I'm not. Right, but the thing is, figure you know when he started, he was just as passionate as as those young girls, and that's right, the right. thing. You know, once you once you enter this profession, I you know I swore it wasn't going to happen to me. You do it, just it, you you do you become jaded, and um, that, I mean, that is a really it's a really a very sad reality. And uh, in order for that not to happen, I'm I, I don't know. I think I think actually you probably do have to kind of go with the poor, you know, right. the art type of theater, because otherwise, you know what what. You do. You lose. You lose your passion. No, and I'm glad that you brought that up, Darcy, because I I wasn't thinking of it from that perspective. And you're right that in that scene, he's probably done this a bunch of times when he's alone and probably a little drunk. But he has to face how much he has really sold out, right. and mm-hmm. and that just kind of hammered it home a little bit more. So so by you explaining it just now, and that actually, I'm a little bit more okay with it. Okay. <laughs> Good. I'm glad I could bring that to you. <laughs> yes, thank you, Darcy. That was very insightful. Right. All right. After after Oliver hears these two uh, come in and speak about him uh, in not so glowing terms, he gets out of the uh, restroom and gets the end results of Mister Stewart's initiation. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. Oh, yeah. The shoes. I mean, that's the yes, perfect the way to end tonight. Someone vomiting on your shoes. <laughs> And, but you know he kind of deserved it, you know, because we we already see him as this this egotistical, and then gets his shoes. Right. Like, yeah, you deserve that, right? <laughs> so uh, we see Jeffrey's place full of partying theater people, uh, which nobody can party like theater people can party sometimes. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> um, and uh, Jeffrey's party is interrupted for him by Oliver repeatedly calling, uh, using. Uh, Getting his foot in his mouth quite a few times and calling again and again. Right. And we do get the sort of playing out a little bit of their relationship and, and what was wrong with it or what is wrong with it. Right. But that went on a little long for me. I was going to say, what, did you guys like that device of the telephone, like mm. the hanging up and, and re-answering it? I, just, I, I had mixed feelings as to how I felt about it, it but was, I'm, just, I'm curious to know what you all thought. It was kind of irritating. I don't know. It, it went on for too long. You know, they probably could have done that in, you know, the, the magic number three phone calls. Right. You know, and then, I mean, we, we know that, that there's this conflict. We know that the one guy's drunk and saying what he shouldn't. But it, honestly, it was, it was too long, and uh, I, I didn't like it. it didn't work I me. think you, you may have hit on it for it being too long, because when it started off, I was like, okay, this is kind of cool. I like how they're doing this. But I, I agree. I think... Maybe they did it a time or two too much. Right. Yeah, I mean, because I mean, as a device, it's, it does sort of work. I mean, it is that they are they are not communicating or communicating poorly, and then you do get the the the, the handy uh, 
you know, instead of someone slamming a door or something, he just, you know, hang, hangs up before he can say what he's going to say. Right, but he picked up every time he called back. Yes. Was it was it five or six calls? Uh, I'm not sure exactly how like many. Five. Yeah, it it's might five, have been five. Yeah, it's too many. So I mean, I think you really get a, a good look at their uh, about their communication breakdown and and how they each felt about the uh, the uh, three productions, the three th- three uh, performances of Hamlet, and uh, what each of theirs attitude toward it in the is, in terms of how it works in their past to us. I didn't really mm-hmm. like how that ended though. No. Where where. Jeff is about to tell Oliver exactly why he feels the way he does, and at the last second, Oliver can't face it, so he's the one who hangs up. Yes. I did. I did like how it ended like that. Mm-hmm. Yep that I, that sequence was very dramatic, and leaves leaves you with an unanswered question and a lot of character insight, and you know a little bit more about what happened between them during the Hamlet production. Right. And right. It was just. Very engrossing. So, uh, after the final phone call, Oliver collapses in the street, and he flashes back to happier times. Right after the, uh, I would, what I would assume would be the premiere performance of the uh, of the Hamlet. Mm-hmm. And we get to see the three uh, the three principals uh, interacting with the, with one another. Right. Then the th- the great theater mind Oliver is. Uh, Struck down by a truck that's uh, carrying Canada's best hams. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that was funny. That was. Well, if you're going to go, go out uh, in a big way. Right, have, right. It, have it have something to do with beer. That's good, right? Did we have any thoughts on the flashback? I thought it, it was a little uncomfortable at one point when they all about started to have a three-way. Yes. I thought it was, you know... I. They just had this rockin' performance, and the two of them ditch him, which is kind of sad. I know they're going to go and, you know, screw, but, I mean, they couldn't wait, like, another hour and, no, you know, spend couldn't. time with their buddy. I know. They were Randy. They were ready to go right then and there. And maybe they I thought really it was weird like I don't know. that in his passed-out dream, he passed out. <laughs> that, that was a little – there was, like, a double pass out there, like, an, almost an inception kind of moment. That's because he was really, really, really drunk. He, he right, right. So, so drunk passed that out he... that he passed out again. <laughs> right. Which is why he didn't wake up when the, when the truck honked. Right. Ah. He was two levels down. But then the truck honking or, wake, or running him over should have woken him up because he died in the dream. <laughs> but perhaps he was already dead of alcohol poisoning. Well, first off, technically uh, we don't know if he's dead because uh, I, I assume that he is. Yeah. But there, it was a fade to black and then you hear the truck. Second off, that truck is going about 10 miles an hour and it had its lights on and he's passed out in a bright spot of the uh, street. The truck couldn't stop. You're yeah. right, but did you, hear the, did you hear breaks? I didn't hear breaks. I did hear breaks, and it was like I it, oh. I understand like that it should have. It just didn't seem like that truck was moving very fast when it was coming out. Well, maybe the driver was on a cell phone, uh, <laughs> <maybe>. <laughs> texting and driving. So, our next order of business is our quotes. Our favorite quotes. I'm going to allow someone else the first quote. I know Amy already got one in, so it should be either Ben or Darcy for the next one. I thought we should go in alphabetical order. Okay. So that would be... By first names, that would be yeah. me. Would well, be it, but she did already get one. Well, there, she got one. So she got one. Okay, so then we can move on to Ben. Ben, your quote. 
All right. Well, the thing that I wrote down wasn't even a quote, so I don't know if it counts, but it was it was words on the screen. And it happens during Mark McKinney's trip to I, I does it what is the name of the corporation? Uh, does anybody it's, remember? It's it's Lenstrex, former uh, well, it's now uh, Cosmopolitan Lenstrex. Yes. Right, right. So he's going to Lenstrex slash Cosmopolitan Lenstrex to for his meeting and he has just spilt his guts to Samantha B look alike. <laughs> And she finally tells him, no, look, I'm on your side. And they sit down, and the second that that, that happens and the, I guess, emotion in oh, the scene has switched, <laughs> yes. in the background, there is a a marker board or a blackboard or something, and it says, deep market penetration, and penetration <laughs> is, like, circled, circled and like, 45 times It's got, like, glow, glow lines coming off of it and everything. Right. <laughs> And it's right when they start flirting with each other. So it's just like, it's pretty obvious, but it made me laugh that those words were just in big, bold letters right behind her head, deep market penetration. So that was that was the one thing that really stood out and I wrote down and, as one of my notes. Sure. Yeah, that was funny. They seem to like their <laughs> visual gags with words in this show. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. The hams, the truck ham also. Exactly. Right hams. The hams. <laughs> That's right. Darcy, you have a quote? I'll, I'll go with this. This is from Oliver. Uh, Don't let them sell you on that dreadful Riesling they served at the press launch. It was like drinking chilled German urine. I just like German urine. That just... <laughs> It's wait, almost, wait, almost what, what Shakespearean. Do you, like? <laughs> you, you, you like German urine? No, no, no. It, it, was, it was almost like iambic pentameter. It was, it was right, cool. Right. It was cool. Now, did you, did you catch at the end of the bar or whatever, Mark McKinney offers to go get imported wine for Samantha B. Lookalike? Absolutely. And she says something about drinking Riesling. So apparently the Riesling ended up getting there, right? Yep, yes. it did. Yep. It made it. Yeah, mm-hmm. Also, Ellen at some point says another glass of that dreadful Riesling. Right. Mm-hmm. Yep, I noticed that. And then she also offers uh, Luke the bartender uh, to get one for himself. Oh, yeah. I'll go with a quote. Um, it's it's a fairly long uh, back and forth between a couple of guys. It's uh, Naum and the, uh, in the security office and Oliver. Truth can be a dangerous thing. Before I left Nigeria, I directed a production of Ken K- Sarawiwa's The Wheel, which was perhaps too openly critical of the Abasha regime. How did it go over? Well, the soldiers came and burned our sets and beat the actors with sticks. Thanks for the perspective. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Good uh, choice. I love that one. That was really great. It's fun. And then flash forward just a few minutes when they're arresting the theater <laughs> yes. owner, and he's like, oh, this kind of reminds me of home. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Which I'm sure it was much worse in Nigeria, but that Probably. was still kind of a funny line. <laughs> yep. And I guess, uh, does anybody else have any other quotes that they liked? Mm. That was the main one that I wrote. Oh, yeah. I like the he's going to love Anchorage. I like that. <laughs> he's just going to love Anchorage. Mm-hmm. Oh, and and then of course you got uh, you got David's quote. She's the devil. <laughs> <laughs> right before that. Uh, oh, and then also from from Basil, the uh, critic. Uh, you don't make demands of the audience. You soothe them. Your shows are are comfortable like an old boot. I like that. <laughs> I, I've done that show, The Comfortable Like an Old Boot. It's awesome. 
and I liked. I also liked his response. I'd ask you to please not use the word boot in your review. Yes. <laughs> and you know he did. You know it's in there. So, you know, that's, that's interesting. Actually, a friend of mine, uh, uh, you know, John Hambach uh, with Walking Shadow. Yes. Uh, he, he's actually, he's a playwright. He wrote, um, oh my gosh, it's, it's the Shakespeare with Zombies show, right? Yeah, yeah. I'm trying to remember the name of it. Um, at any rate, uh, they did that uh, up in, it was in Duluth? And uh, apparently the critic up there uh, had something to say completely opposite of it being comfortable like an old boot. It was, it was uh, to, to the effect of, I, I don't go to the theater to think. And the show was horrible because of that. Because you had to think? Yeah. It, nice. it, was, it was pretty interesting. So. Huh. Yeah, I know. I'll, I'll have to look that up and uh, we'll, we'll, have to, we'll have to plug uh, Walking Shadow. Yes, we'll plug, plug pretty, Walking, pretty, Walking Shadow Theater Company. Yeah. Cool people. Uh, actually, I actually kind of like that line because a that made me think, and then b that sounds like a play that I would like to go to. Oh, absolutely! <laughs> yes, absolutely. I oh. agree. All right, are we ready to rate? Uh, well, once sure. again, I'll once again uh, explain the introcast rating system uh, on the many introcasts. It's uh, you uh, rating out of ten, and then you choose uh, what it is. Instead of being stars, it'll be whatever you think is amusing out of the episode. Uh, does anyone want to go first, or I can do mine? Um, I have a question before we do this. Certainly. Um, for for Canadian series or series like HBO's or any any kind of like drama series that's not network, do they do a pilot model? Like, was this is this a pilot episode? Like they did one to try to sell it, and then they make some corrections. Or um, I, you know, I, I don't think that it was quite like that because I know that the network commissioned them to write it. Okay. So right, I mean, right. to, to some extent, to some extent, it wasn't. Although I, 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 and I'm not exactly clear on production dates, but it, there is, there are a few things that, uh, a few differences in casting and things that happen between the first episode and between this pilot episode and another episode. And not, no major characters, but there is, there is uh, introduction of some new characters in the second episode um, that sort of makes me wonder whether they were they retooled it. If just they a retooled little bit. it a little, yeah. And see, that's why I'm asking because, like, usually for pilot episodes, I kind of give them more of a pass because it's kind of like this is this is the idea we're going in, but this may not be what the show is going to be like. You know, it's kind of like a uh, a first draft of the show. But if it was uh, specifically written, then I'm going to give this show six out of ten deep market penetrations. <laughs> <laughs> deep, a, a, a deep six, but uh, a six out of ten. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Okay, I, um, you know, it, it, was, it was really interesting. It made me laugh, reminded me of a lot of people I know. I'm going to go ahead, I'm going to give it um, seven bad green fairy costumes. <laughs> Were you not a fan of the fairy costumes? No. But that, that's the thing, you know, when, you, when you're doing that kind of theater, you can, like, have the designer that's the best from New York, but they really suck. So, yeah. Yeah. I guess it's my turn. Sure. Okay. I've got to go with six out of ten of Canada's best hams. Mmm. <laughs> a six-pack. All right. And uh, <laughs> to round things out, I'll give it a, a uh, an eight out of ten glasses of chilled German urine. <laughs> <laughs> we don't have any of that in the fridge, do we? No. Oh. Mommy drinks because you cry. <laughs> oh. 
<laughs> All right. So your your assignment for next time, the episode that you'll be doing next time is uh, episode two, Jeffrey's Return. Right. Uh, does anybody have any predictions as to what might happen next? Uh, well, I assume that Oliver is dead and Jeffrey will fill his boots. His old comfortable boots. His old comfortable boots. <laughs> his old comfortable boots, indeed. Oh well, if we again, we did not, we didn't hear break. I think we see him they, die. Yeah, we didn't see him die. That is, it's very ambiguous. So you're right. Mm-hmm. If Oliver is dead, Jeffrey probably will have to take over. If not, I guess they'll somehow be reunited. Okay. Yeah, see, I, I think you're right, Amy. I think that it could go one way or the other. Like, before we sat down to talk about this, I just assumed he was dead. And as we started talking, I realized that we don't ever see that. And the reason why I assumed he was dead and that, that, that he may be returning is because now Jeffrey is a director without a company and the Lexmark company is a theater without a director. So I figured maybe that's why they would kind of pair. Hmm. But I'm super interested to see if he actually did die. Yeah, kind of like yeah. Matthew. He, you know, Matthew, is he dead? Do we know? Excuse me? Oh, this is, totally. It's another show. Yeah, okay. totally <laughs> but, it, you know, and that was, that's where I was. I was like, is he, they is showed he dead, him. Is he dead like Matthew? I know, I know. But they didn't show him. But it, I'm pretty sure I'm pretty sure he's goner. Do you know what? You <laughs> yeah. want to know why? Because he, he was done. You know, there, it, it, it was it was just kind of his. You could just tell that was it. That was how it was going to end. <laughs> that for him. His arc was over. That yeah. was it. Yeah, he's done. Spark, Spark's gone. All right. Well, with that, uh, we will call it uh, an end to this episode of the Ghostlight Podcast. Uh, I'm Paul Mackey. I'm Darcy Zebernick. I'm Amy Bowen. And I'm Ben Pfeiffer. And goodbye. Bye. See you later. <laughs> Good night. And pen net tie with Rosencrantz and Guildenstern to make sure he got there. Hamlet jumped the boat and put the finger on that pair. All right, we just have a couple more pieces of business here. Um, we have some feedback. We will go to our email and listen to the voice message that Steph sent us. Hello, Ghostlight Podcast. This is Stephanie. Uh, you may know me from Potential Cast or Redemption Cast or you know, any other podcast I could have been on. But uh, I just wanted to say hello and to say how excited I am um, to be a part of this podcast to watch along with you guys. I hope you guys have a good show. Um, <clears throat> I, let's see. I, I watched the pilot over. I watched the first few episodes back a year or two ago when I first got Netflix. But um, I didn't quite get it at first, and it was very Canadian-y to me, <laughs> which I can't even explain what that means. But, you know, I, I, I say that with great affection, because there's just a certain wit and charm that Canadian productions have that is not like... Um, you know, the United States, it's not like England, it's not like any other place. It's just a uniquely Canadian. And uh, I think Slings and Arrows is uh, it's a great show. And especially because I'm a newly, um, I'm a new, I'm new to this world of the theater. I'm, I'm the parent, I'm a, I'm a theater mom. 
and I'm just, we're, you know, we're going through our Shakespeare phase where we're reading Shakespeare and watching Shakespeare and going to see plays, and it's a lot of fun, and it's just, you know, new and bizarre to me, because this is just not, I'm not creative at all. This is like some, uh, I don't know, outside world to me, but, um, yeah, back to the pilot of Slings and Arrows, I really, you know, Paul Gross, you know, Mr. Canada, he is so charming and so charismatic, and I'm really excited to watch a, a show that he stars in, that he, um, and this is his wife, I just realized, that, um, that plays along beside him, and, um, <clears throat> Let's see. Oh, um, you know, what's her face? I can never remember her name. Rachel McAdams. And, oh my God, Luke Kirby. What a doll. He was in my least favorite movie of last year, uh, Take This Waltz. Hated the movie, but I loved him. I think he's very charming, and he's also in Rectify. Awesome. But, uh, I really like the, um, the commerce versus art. You know, with the guy from um, Kids in the Hall. I'm sorry, I can't remember his name. But he and the lady that's his, whatever. I can't. I don't even know what they are. They're together. They're is they're like coworkers, and they're all a part of the uh, trying to raise money and um, take care of the to uh, the uh, budget. And raise money because you know artists that is not it, it takes a unique person that is an artist and is also a business person that's just to me I don't know that those two things are are so different from each other and it's um, I would think that an artistic person is not concerned with business because to me one is logic and one is creativity and I think those are two different parts of the brain so anyway I'm sorry I've went on too long but I'm really excited I want you, I, I, if there's anything I can do to help you guys I don't know what I could do but you know just whatever let me know and hopefully I can uh, join you guys and I just I, I will try my best to keep up all right, talk to you later. Bye. And thank you very much, Steph, for that. Uh, if you want to get in touch with the show, you can contact us via our email, theghostlightpodcast at gmail.com. That is theghostlightpodcast at gmail.com. You can find our Facebook group. Just search for Ghost Light Podcast on Facebook. You can get us on Twitter at ghostlightpc. And you can find this and many other fine podcasts at www.quadruplez.com. Oh, so gory, Hamlet, Hamlet, end of story, Hamlet, Hamlet, I'm away. If you think this is boring, you should read the bloody play. You are listening to the Ghostlight Podcast. Season 1, Episode 1, Oliver's Dream. After recovering from a mental breakdown... Ew, crap. (laughs) 
Okay, I'm just going to start over. Take two. But I won't do that every single time if I trip, trip up again. Okay. Are you petting me? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay, here we go. You are listening to the ghost... Okay, that's bad. Okay, that's enough, Paul. That's all I'm allowed, right? That's it. Okay. Just keep going now. Okay. <laughs> 